So I've already opened my wind. I'm also video recording just in case something happens again. Nothing's gonna happen. I have a good feeling about today. For everyone Ooh, who listened to uh, last week's episode, um, I did write an email to Robert the doll, and I did apologize. And, and... immediately, um, things got better. <laughs> of our podcast um i saw today an attempted murder Uh, sorry sorry i saw an attempted murder what on my way to work this morning what there were two crows oh fuck you (laughs) they were i hate you so much i was so excited I don't know what's so worse, excited. the fact that that it was crows, which, whatever, or or the fact that I was legitimately excited to hear this story, um, <laughs> I'm glad I could lead with that, but anyway, it was like, as I was driving past them, they were sitting on top of uh, a garbage can, and like, chattering with each other like an old married couple and I'm like oh what a cute little old attempted murder <laughs> wow <laughs> I have been thinking about that for the past two hours so wow yeah 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 <laughs> my um <laughs> my dad told me a story about my grandpa yesterday oh no um he was talking to him on the phone last night, and he told me a story that he told him. Basically, my grandpa and his priest? Pastor? Pastor. I don't know. He's just called Brother Randy. Brother? And, yeah. Sounds, and, sounds like a cult thing. That's what they sound like in... Christianity. <laughs> anyway. Now the the father I get, but I've never heard brothers. I've heard sister. Never ignore me. So, my grandpa and Uncle Randy went to a hotel in Lexington for some sort of religious revival. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And brother Randy <laughs> sees these like giant muscular bikers from Detroit like a lot of them and he just is like you know what I'm gonna go over there and he just walks up to him and starts talking to them and is like uh have you all heard the word of God ah I wish he would have just left it at the word and (laughs) the guy was like uh you know what you come back here 
at 7 p.m. Come around back. That's where we're all staying. And uh, you can talk to us then. And they do. They do. They do. And they do. This so they come back, but before they do, they tell the receptionist, they're like, if we're not back in 15 minutes, call the police. And they go back there, and they're like, hey, what's up? Um, and he just goes over there, starts talking about God and shit. And some of them are interested, some of them aren't. And then about 15, 20 minutes later, a cop car pulls up. And suddenly, all of them are really, really religious. They're like, yeah, we are just so into what this guy's saying now that there's this cop over here. That, gotta say, one of the best stories um, I've heard from about my grandpa in a while. Um, That's gold. That's gold. But yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting story because... All of the stories that I've heard about my grandpa are um, also interesting. That was a more, like, funny one, not really about Mm -hmm. him. The others Mm -hmm. were all, like, about how mysterious his jobs always were and how he randomly had money to buy boats and golf carts and stuff. And there's a potential link to the cornbread mafia that he will not talk about and every time my dad brings up the cornbread mafia he changes the subject that's fun (laughs) so my co-worker is like my best friend at work and she knows me so well and I've already sent this this to Grace but she made me a little cross stitch that says the only man for me is Mothman. I love it so much. And it's got a cute little Mothman in there. And we're going to share a picture of it on the um, the social media pages because it's just so cute. I definitely have to learn how to do cross stitches now because this is just super cute. And I need to make this and I need to make some other ones like... Along the lines of live, laugh, love, but, no, hold on. Live, laugh, lurk? Live, laugh, murder podcast. Okay. It just goes right in there, because I need it. Okay. In case you don't know, 52 episodes in, not including um, holiday episodes, I am Rachel, and that is Grace. I am Grace, that is Rachel... We are. We are. Are a we podcast. going full in? Nah, we're just a podcast. Just a podcast. That's all. Just a podcast. That's Who our needs new title. to know? Just a podcast. You don't need to know. What are you doing here? No. No. Yeah, what are you doing here? Go away. No, please don't go away. All right. Let's get this into week. this shit. This shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, where are we? Where are we this week, Rachel? This week we are in Frankfort, Kentucky. So oh sorta of kinda Oh my gosh. Sorta of kinda coming right back home for us. My sources are KentuckyAtlas.com, Britannica.com, visitfrankfurt.com, and unfortunately Wikipedia. But reasons. 
1780, there was a skirmish between the natives at the time and European settlers at a local fording place along the river. And um, clearly, my knowledge of the English language is lacking, or I've just kind of lost that knowledge, because I had to look up what fording meant. Fording? Fording. Like, fording the river. (laughs) It's crossing, like, walking through a very shallow part of the river. I had to look that up because there was... Well, I feel like it's not an everyday thing for most people, so I think you're good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, the frontiersman named Stephen Frank was killed during the skirmish, which became known as Frank's Ford, which over time just kind of meshed into being Frankford. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's why it's town Frankfurt. The town was originally established in 1786 as Frankfurt, Virginia. Then in 1792, Frankfurt became the capital. It was then incorporated into Kentucky in 1835. Twice in its early history, the Capitol building was actually burned down, which seems to be a very common theme in (laughs) a lot of history, (laughs) at which points the larger cities of Louisville and Lexington tried to take over the title of the capital of Kentucky, but ultimately failed because Frankfurt's just like right smack in the middle. So it just kind of makes sense to be the capital. During the Civil War, it was briefly occupied by Confederate General Braxton Bragg, not really good, but apparently very major part of history. Frankfurt has been a trading center for the entire... You tell Hi. her. Hey, thanks. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Frankfurt has been the trading center for the entire bluegrass region. I don't know if we've mentioned it before, but Kentucky is known as the bluegrass state because of a specific species of grass that is found all over the state. Some good shit. And this is my random fun fact. It's actually a grass that can be found all over the the U.S. and it originated from Europe, Asia, and Northern Africa. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, so super common grass. And while people would think, oh, the grass is green, not blue. Because I know I've looked at our yard and it's like, no, nah, that's that's green. That's not blue. And we are like prime central for blue grass. Apparently, if you let the grass grow tall enough to seed and flower, then, then you'll see blue. It'll pop a little blue flower. Fun fact. Anyway, um, trading center. Yes. It's a massive trading center for tobacco, corn, and thoroughbred horses, as was mentioned mm-hmm. in our very first episode. It manufactures auto parts, bourbon whiskey, which is... Eight plus amazing candy corn, furniture, electronic parts, machinery, and clothing. The state normal school for colored persons opened in 1887 and actually became uh, Kentucky State University. Oh, okay. I mm-hmm. had no idea. Uh, same. There are several historic buildings, including the old Capitol building, which burned down multiple times, Liberty Hall, and Orlando Brown House. When I typed this, I wanted to type Orlando Bloomhouse. <laughs> oh, I know you yes. too well. <laughs> you do. One of the things um, that I finally remember from childhood is going to Squire Boone Caverns and Daniel Boone National Forest. Yeah. And just, you know, just being in awe with what they did. And fu- actually another 
kind of fun fact. Daniel Boone and his wife, Rebecca, can be found in Frankfurt Cemetery. Oh, wow. And see, yeah, I always thought that they were like Squire Boone and buried in the cave. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of caves, I want to do Mammoth Cave for an episode. For an episode? Yeah. I thought you meant, like, actually just go to Mammoth Cave. Okay. Well, yeah, that too, we'll do but that. apparently it's haunted. Oh. Yeah, so. we need to cover it. So, the Kentucky Historic Center was built in 1999, in case you so happen went to visit there. There's also a Military History Museum, Capital City Museum, and Wildlife Center, mm. which I would go to. Yeah. Um, and I do want to point out a shit ton of hiking trails are around there. Wonderful, beautiful, um, highly recommend them. Great workout. <laughs> yep. And yeah, and super f- peaceful if you find a trail with no one on it. So many mushrooms. All the mushrooms. So mushrooms. beautiful. And that is the history of Frankfort, Kentucky. Something I found out about Frankfort recently Please. was that. Yes. Um, it's not as far away from Louisville as I thought it was. No, it's like half an hour, if that. It's like barely, it's like 40 minutes away. Yep. I guess that's what my What is turn. your story? Yes. Uh, okay, so I originally wanted to do Operation Bop Trot, which is this whole scandal that happened in Frankfurt back in the 90s mm-hmm. um, about all of these, like legislators who got arrested i think like at least between like 12 to 20 legislators that got arrested because they were basically taking bribes and uh, i was going to talk about the like fbi investigation and all of that that happened with it but i was going into it and i was like i find this really interesting but i'm also getting a little bit bored at certain points and i yeah so I went with a tell, different one. Tell me the gist of it later. That's basically the gist of it. Oh, uh, that's one guy was, okay. Um, <laughs> one guy was killed. Oh, you know, nothing. No, no, nobody was killed or anything. <laughs> um, this One guy was abducted by aliens. No. He went to Frankfurt to try to get money for, um, well, he was already in Frankfurt, but one of the owners of one of the racetracks there went to a went to Frankfurt to try try to get more money and he wasn't unable to get it and he talked to this legislator who was like you know for like $10,000 you can get it real easily (laughs) and he was like oh that's kind of so he called the FBI and they're like oh okay so we're just gonna let you go ahead and go through with this and we're gonna call uh we're gonna like record the conversation and it became this like years-long investigation that resulted in a shit ton of people being arrested nice at a certain point uh whenever legislators would walk down the street people would walk by them and be like hey how much could i buy you for basically and they said it was really embarrassing (laughs) so yeah i just i mean just kind of put yourself in that situation (laughs) well it was one of the legislators that had nothing to do with it had no idea oh well then that's not fair yeah but it was like a whole thing completely ruined the reputation of a lot of politicians who weren't even involved in it so yeah that's not fair yeah i'm sorry 
but um, instead, my story is the Beauchamp Sharp tragedy. Oh, never heard of it. Me either. This did happen in the 1800s, so it's not the most current, but it's still super interesting. Um, my sources are Murderpedia and MurderByGaslight.com because they both had multiple sources on there, and I looked through a couple of them. Mm-hmm. So, all right. All right. I'll start the story with the one who this entire thing sort of revolves around, which is Anna Cook. Okay. There's not a particular amount known about her because most of the information on this case comes from two conflicting documents, which I'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. Anna Cook was an unconventional woman, though well-read, because she had a lot of disdain for society's rules, which I can relate to. Yeah. And although she was often thought to have been a beautiful woman, she was once described as, quote, in no way a handsome or desirable woman. This sounds like it's from a very um, bitter ex-lover. <laughs> it's not. It's from their brother. Oh, well, that's why. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, obviously, he obviously. felt a certain way about her, but, you know. Yeah, uh, like, sisters <laughs> will always talk their sister up, and they will always talk their brother up, but I don't think I've ever met a brother who's been like, oh, yeah, my sister's beautiful. Oh, no, no, no. Or a this handsome was, woman. This was her alleged former lover's brother. Oh, well, again, that, yeah. But still, same like, sort ew, of idea. Ew, yeah. Ew. My, my brother, no. Especially no. with the way things turned out. Oh. Yes. So, the Cook family were, were Virginian aristocrats, although their fortune was dwindling since Anna's father had passed. Wait, Virginian aristocrats were a thing? Apparently. Apparently, if you were rich in the... In the 1800s, you were considered an aristocrat. 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 <laughs> it's all back to the aristocrats. <laughs> aristocrat just sitting there with their little bottle of uh, wine and Chardonnay. With one, one of those, like, um, little stick, like, cigarette yes. holder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> On topic. Um, but yeah, Anna, along with her mother and at least five brothers and at least two dozen slaves, moved to Kentucky looking for a fresh start, setting mm-hmm. up a new estate just outside Bowling Green and named it Retirement. Yeah. <laughs> I know, it's an interesting name. Because Anna was the oldest daughter, she was likely to have plenty of suitors, were it not for those pesky opinions and the fact that she chose to remain unmarried by choice. So this meant that she was pretty much shunned and spent most of her time indoors reading, but that doesn't mean she wasn't getting out there. In fact, she was seen with plenty of men, which along with her Mm. lack of husband led to rumors of sexual promiscuity, which kind of turned out to be true when it was discovered in 1820 that 35-year-old Anna Cook was pregnant. Oh. Unfortunately, the child was stillborn that June. Aww. This is where things get crazy, though. She told everyone that she had been seduced and abandoned by Colonel Solomon Sharp. And she even told people the date of conception, which was Sunday, September 18th, 1819, while Sharp's wife, Eliza, was in church. Oh no, Mm -hmm. on the Lord's Day. 
On the oh, Lord's what Day. A, what a sin. <laughs> they fornicated on the Lord's Day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the Sharp family lived nearby, and the two had known each other for the better part of 12 years. Solomon Sharp was the most successful attorney in Bowling Green, becoming a U.S. congressman at 24. Oh, nice. he didn't want anything to derail his career, so he denied it. Instead, offering up the theory that the child was actually the product product of an affair with one of the Cook family slaves. Oh. Yes. But Sharp had enemies, which meant that <laughs> when he put a bin for, uh, bid in for state attorney general, they mentioned Anna Cook any and every time that they could. I mean, you know how it's it would go. It it would get the vote of single women at the time. Wait, eighteen? They weren't voting. Ignore me. <laughs> Uh, the state senate actually formed a committee to investigate the allegations and found them to be wholly groundless, confirming Sharp as attorney general. No one has ever been able to confirm uh, whether the two legitimately had an affair, and he seemed to be a happy man with a beautiful wife and child on the way, but we all know how that goes. On top of that, they couldn't charge him with seduction, which meant taking a young woman's virtue with the false promise of marriage because nobody thought that 35-year-old Anna was still virtuous. I mean, a girl's gotta have fun. And on top of that, Anna was well aware that Sharp was married. So... It... it, Wrong on both parts. Yeah, but nobody could ever, like, prove it. Prove anything, yeah. And on top of this, if it was a case of seduction, her brothers would have been honor-bound to seek retribution, and they never did. So, this brings us to Jeroboam Orville Beauchamp. What a name, Jeroboam. What a what a fantastic name. Yeah. So it's like Jeremiah M. Bo. Yes. So Jeroboam. Jeroboam. M. Bo- oh, Boam. Boam, like a boa constrictor. Boam. Boa. Boam? Mm. <laughs> Is that how we feel about him? <laughs> Mm. (laughs) Not the mmm part. Beauchamp was self-described as intelligent, almost genius little. Level. Self-described. Genius little. Genius little. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Stuart Little, but genius little. I know. He left a home at 16, realizing his father could no longer care for the whole family. He tried to stand as a shopkeeper and a teacher before he chose a career in law, following after someone he really looked up to, Solomon Sharp. Although, after the illegitimate child scandal, he no longer looked up to him. Yeah. He was similar to Anna in that he didn't care much for society's rules, but he was also said to be violent, selfish, and uh, unruly. Mm. Great combo. Yeah. One acquaintance said he, quote, never knew him to do an act of any kind which indicated magnanimity of soul or real dignity of sentiment. 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 That? Mmm. Great, great description. That, it's, yeah. Uh, he's selfish. At 18, very. Beauchamp fell ill and went to recover at one of his father's estates just a mile from Cook's family home and learned that after the scandal, she had become a recluse, rarely leaving retirement. Same. After Uh, after after hearing this, he was determined to meet her. 
he was like... He was determined to get in her pants. Yeah. Under the guise of using her library, Beauchamp finally managed to meet Anna Cook after writing her multiple letters with her saying, nah. Um, <laughs> after visiting a couple of times, they got to talking and discovered that they both loved romance novels and poetry. And although she was 17 years his senior, he fell deeply in love with her. You know, as long as it's actually consensual. Uh, yeah. yeah. Though Anna seemed to return the sentiment in 1821 when he asked for her hand in marriage, she told him, again, quote, the hand which should receive hers should have to revenge the injury a villain had done to her. Her heart could never cease to ache till Colonel Sharp could die through her instrumentality. Beauchamp was like, why not? (laughs) Okay, but also, all of that, yes, but also, when you said quote, I thought you were going to say, end quote, nah. Nah. (laughs) No, um... Yeah, and he was like, why not? Sure, I'm down for that. It was later claimed that the same year, Beauchamp traveled to Frankfurt to challenge Sharp to a duel, which Sharp refused, but Beauchamp pressured him to the point that Sharp begged on his knees for mercy. The next day, Beauchamp sought Sharp out in the streets of Frankfurt, but was told he had gone to Bowling Green. So Beauchamp went to Bowling Green, only to learn that Sharp wasn't there. So he just went back to Anna. Most likely this didn't happen, as there were no witnesses, and a lot of this comes from Beauchamp himself. Oh, oh yeah. So yeah. he was playing it up. Yeah. He's playing sure. it he up. He probably for saw him. him on the street and was like, ooh, he's scary, and walked away. <laughs> She's got this wonderful image of like a busy 1800 street. And, and like hiding like, in an alley. Makes eyesight. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. like makes eyesight, and then pulls the hat over his face and just scurries off into the alley. (laughs) No, I'm good. Uh, So, after Beauchamp's rather poor attempt to kill Sharp, Cook herself apparently decided to lure Sharp to her house in order to kill him. Beauchamp Mm. wasn't a fan because he wanted to be the one to kill Sharp to defend his wife-to-be's honor. But he went ahead and taught her how to use a gun, and upon learning that Sharp was in Bowling Green on business... Cook sent him a letter condemning Beauchamp's attempt on his life and asked to see him again. (laughs) Beauchamp questioned the kid who delivered the letter because he was like, "Um, this is a trap. This is sketch. Yeah. He sent a reply that he would meet her at the time appointed, but never showed, I guess. Beauchamp, hoping to kill Sharp before the meeting, traveled to Bowling Green, but found Sharp already departed for Frankfurt. Oh no. It's like they just keep missing each other. <laughs> it, you know, not the right time, not the right place. It, these things happen. <laughs> Beauchamp decided to finish his legal studies in Bowling Green and wait for Sharp to return there. Why not? He was admitted sure. to the bar in 1823, and despite the, f- the fact that he couldn't kill one, the one dude Anna wanted him to kill... She agreed to marry him in June of 1824. Duh. But they continued plotting his murder. In 1825, Sharp campaigned for General Assembly, and his opponent brought up Anna Cook again. It didn't work, and he got the job, but by the time news reached the Beauchamps, the rumors, sl- like, the rumored slander 
included the additional detail that Colonel Sharp had obtained a certificate from the midwife who delivered the stillborn baby, claiming that the infant was in fact half black. The charge that his wife had had sex with a black man set Beauchamp off. He was pissed. And he decided to write letters to Sharp pretending to be random people with legal issues, sending each letter from a different post office so he could remain conspicuous. And anonymous. And anonymous. Yeah. Uh, When Sharp failed to answer any of them, Beauchamp decided to go to Frankfurt and assassinate him, hoping the timing would cast suspicion on Sharp's political enemies at the time. Oh, Beauchamp, don't you do For that. real. And he planned this out for weeks. He sold his property and let people know he was moving to Missouri. For some reason. Missouri? Yeah. Of all places. Of all places. The thing is... I guess that is far enough away. Yeah. Um... Hmm. But a woman named Ruth Reed claimed that Beauchamp was the father of her illegitimate child, born June 10th, 1824. Yeah. At, wait, when did they get married? 1825? Oh, okay. I was gonna say, no, he no, cheated June on June of Anna. 1824. She agreed to marry him in 1824. And the baby was born the same month that she agreed. And when did he start pining after her? Uh, three years prior. I mean, guys gotta... <laughs> guys gotta fuck. Get it from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Beauchamp later claimed that he had arranged for the warrant to be issued so that he could have a plausible reason to be in Frankfurt at the time he was going to kill Sharp. Mm-hmm. But... That that warrant would mean that he would have to secretly make his way out of the state. If he was moving to Missouri, he wouldn't just tell people. You know what I mean? Wait, no, repeat. My brain decided to mix up some words. So basically, he had already told everybody that he was moving to Missouri. That he had this whole plan. But if this warrant came out, then if he planned to get this warrant out for his arrest, wouldn't he not tell people that he was going to Missouri? You would think. That, so... what Warrant out for Sharp's arrest or Beauchamp's? Beauchamp. Beauchamp's. Okay. So, if Beauchamp was telling people, hey, I'm moving to Missouri, why would he then turn around and be like, hey, can you put this warrant around out for my arrest? So... It'll look like I have a reason. That doesn't make sense to me. So it looks so it looks like he has a reason to run. No, so it looks like he has a reason to be in Frankfurt, which I guess is where people would solve their legal matters. It just it doesn't make sense to me. So like maybe he is trying to go from like stopping in Frankfurt on the way to Missouri. I don't think so. I think the um, warrant was legitimate and he just tried to make that up so that his, he wouldn't look like a fucking hypocrite for trying to kill somebody who fathered an illegitimate child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he headed to Frankfurt with a packed bag full of change of clothes, a black mask, and a knife with poison on the tip. Don't stab yourself. 
All of the inns were filled when he arrived, and he eventually found lodging at the private residence of Joel Scott, who happened to be the warden of the state penitentiary. Hmm. Between 9 and 10 o'clock that evening, he slipped out of the house and proceeded to Sharp's home, dressed in disguise, burying his change of clothes along the bank of the Kentucky River so he could retrieve them after the murder. He waited for Sharp at his home and watched him arrive around midnight. He then waited two hours before putting on the mask and knocking on the door, hoping everyone would be asleep. Mm-hmm. Sharp came up to the door and asked who was there, and Bullshit pretended to be someone he knew so that he would open the door, and it worked. Oh, jeez. When he- <laughs> when the door opened, Beauchamp exclaimed, Die, you villain, and stabbed Sharp in the abdomen, although Beauchamp later said it was the heart. It wasn't. Sharp died soon after being stabbed, and the first suspects included some of Sharp's political opponents, like Beauchamp had hoped, but then it was learned that Jeroboam Beauchamp, the husband of Anna Cook, oh my god, had been in Frankfurt that day, and he became the sole suspect. They're like, this guy's kind of been trying to kill this guy for a while. I think it might be him. Might be a little suspicious. Just a little. Also, I'm going to interject. What a Disney villain type thing to say. Die, you villain. Die, you villain. Right. (laughs) They were a bit extra, I guess. I don't know. They had to be theatrical. I mean, why not? Four days later, a patrol arrived at retirement, arrested Beauchamp, and took him to Frankfurt. They concluded that Beauchamp had the opportunity to commit the crime by virtue of having been in Frankfurt the night of the killing, and his host, the warden of the penitentiary, said that he heard Mm -hmm. Beauchamp leave in the night. A dagger was taken off Beauchamp upon his arrest, but it didn't match the wound on Sharp's body. He threw it in the river. He buried it at the river. Oh. Yeah. Close. An attempt was made to match Beauchamp's shoe track found outside Sharp's house the morning of the murder, but they didn't match. Mm. He hid those two. Of course. A handkerchief found at the scene of the crime and believed to belong to the murderer had been lost, which Beauchamp later claimed to have stolen and burned after the group of men who had taken him from retirement had gone to sleep one night on the way back to Frankfurt. Yeah. Eliza Sharp, hmm. Solomon Sharp's wife, wife yeah. testified that the voice of the killer was distinct and there was a test to see if she could recognize it. And she immediately identified him as the killer, which is hilarious because Beauchamp claimed that he had disguised his voice on the night of the murder and thought that she wouldn't recognize it. Oh, oh, oh. I don't know who you think I am. <laughs> Die, you I am just some... I am just some strange man. Mm, I just... Die! Die, you villain! Die, villain! <laughs> I, <laughs> that was almost funnier. Die, villain! Um. <laughs> Reminds me of that movie that's gonna come out. Which one? The one you sent me with um the girl that plays Claire in Supernatural. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah! Oh, the girl that becomes that. a serial killer through some weird magic. Yeah. Um... <laughs> On top of her testimony, a man named Patrick H. Darby claimed that in 1824 he had a chance encounter with Beauchamp and said he had asked for Darby's help in prosecuting an unspecified claim against Sharp. Mm. 
the man. <laughs> oh gosh. And it's just, then he said he wanted to kill him. He's like, I want to sue him. I want to kill him. I as well. want to kill him. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the nice. trial lasted 11 days and included testimony from dozens of witnesses. Beauchamp pl- pled not guilty, and the evidence against him was almost entirely circumstantial. Neither side mentioned the rumored affair between Cook and Sharp, because the defense didn't want to raise the possibility that Beauchamp had been seeking revenge, and the prosecution didn't want the jury to think the murder was justified. Ah, totally justified. No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) The prosecution also made no attempt to establish a motive for the murder, and it was going Beauchamp's way until it was discovered that he had tried to persuade a friend to commit perjury on his behalf. He was like, hey, I want you to tell the jury I've never said a bad thing about Sharp, that I think he's a really cool dude, and I admire him a lot, and will pay you for it. And his friend's like, nah, man, his he never like, said anything good about right. him. Right! He's like, didn't you want to kill that? Like, that's all you ever talk about. It's like you're obsessed with him. <laughs> oh my god, why are you so obsessed with me? <laughs> um, the jury deliberated for less than an hour before returning a guilty verdict. Mm-hmm. So, Jeroboam Beauchamp was sentenced to hang on June 16th that year. Anna was so distraught that she refused to leave her husband's side and actually joined him in his jail cell, which was like a windowless dungeon with the only entrance being a trap door. And together, yeah. I was gonna say, one, I hope to love someone like that one day, but also I hope to never love someone like that one day. You want to love someone a lot, but not to love someone who would do something like that. Right. Right. But also, I don't want to be in a dingy, dark dungeon. Cell. Yeah. Yeah. Together, together they wrote the <laughs> confession of Jeroboam O. Beauchamp, a document which they believed would save him from execution. In it, they described their love, recounting how Solomon Sharp had seduced and abandoned a worthy orphaned female, revealing how the cowardly Sharp had refused to duel, though admitting that Jeroboam had committed the murder. The Beauchamps believed that the confession would convince the governor and the people of Kentucky that the act was justified and that he should be released. It did not. <laughs> Uh, Beauchamp wanted to publish the document and release it for print, but they couldn't find a publisher, and the governor refused to stay of execution. They tried to bribe a guard into allowing them to escape. Yeah. Yep, yep, because that's gonna work. When all of that failed, they attempted to pass a letter to Senator Beauchamp asking him to help them escape, who was his uncle. And that also failed. As it does, as it does. Seemingly out of options, Cook and Beauchamp decided to complete suicide together. Anna sm- I knew that's where this was going. Anna smuggled laudanum into the cell, pack. concealed in her bosom. They left instructions for what their- What a great place to conceal it. Right. They left instructions <laughs> for their burial, drank the laudanum, and did not die. They didn't? No. They tried again the morning of the hanging, though. Um, This time she had smuggled in a knife, 
and she stabbed herself with him following. While Anna died, Beauchamp survived long enough to make it to the execution where he was hanged in front of 5,000 people in Frankfurt. While gushing blood out of his torso. I think they wrapped him up. They're like, let's just keep him alive long enough. (laughs) Let's keep him alive long enough to kill him. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, when given the chance to express last words, he declined, instead asking for a glass of water and requested a band play Bonaparte's Retreat from Moscow. He is going out with his thirst quenched and his favorite song on the radio. No. Okay. Sure. No. The Confessions of Jeroboam Beauchamp was published after the execution, the story inspired dozens of novels and dramas including Politian, which is an unfinished play by Edgar Allan Poe, which sets the story in 16th century Rome instead of Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. None of these adaptations were particularly successful. So. No, really? <laughs> the couple asked that they not have their faces covered and that Anna should be placed on Beauchamp's right with her head resting on his arm which would be wrapped around her in an embrace. A month before the execution, Anna Beauchamp wrote an epitaph for their tombstone to, and to gain sympathy, attempted to have it published in a newspaper. Like the confession, the epitaph was not published until after their deaths. The burial instructions were followed. Jeroboam and Anna Beauchamp were buried together in a single coffin in Maple Grove Cemetery in Bloomfield, Kentucky. Anna's epitaph was engraved on the headstone, and honestly, it's too long for me to read, so I'm not going to. Okay. But that was the Beauchamp Sharp tragedy. That is so sad. It's very... It's... Well... It, it, I can understand. There, there are comedic <laughs> parts to where they keep yes. he keeps missing him. Like, he's, like, yes. just there, and then he's gone, and then... But then... The fact that All of it. he agreed to try to kill this man who he had never met was very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. What is your story, Rachel? My story is the conjure chest. Yeah, nope. I also had not heard of it, which brings me to my first source, which I did not rewatch. Um, it's... Zach Bagan's Haunted Possessions. Um, One of the episodes he does The Conjure Chest, and I kind of enjoyed it. Which also, I think I... hmm? I'll have to look it up. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a good episode. It's, um, it pretty much tells you everything I'm about to tell you. Oh. My other sources are, um, thehiddenpod.wordpress.com which is the website for a podcast called The Hidden Staircase. Oh. Who actually writes out their stories and publishes them online. I don't which think is I've not ever a bad heard of idea. Them. But they did have a section where like listen to this episode here. So worth the worth the shot listening. I probably will this weekend when I actually have a chance. Can you send me a link whenever you do? I will do that right now. Okay, cool. Oh shoot. I will not remember. From tinypennies.com, history.ky.gov, dailymail.co.uk, claremontsun.com, and angelfire.com. Okay. Um, yeah. 
So the conjure chest or the conjured chest is located at the Kentucky Historical Society in Frankfort, Kentucky. And I also want to just mention that like your story last week, this one has multiple versions. Mm-hmm. But essentially the story is the same, just the names are different. Okay. And this is because when the story was originally released and published in the newspaper in 1982, the names had been changed in order to protect the family's identities. Oh. However, more recently, a daughter of one of the chest owners has published a book regarding its history titled The Conjured Chest, A Cursed Family in Old Kentucky by Beverly Maine Kinzel. That's right. Get your money. Yes. You go, girl. Are you sitting on Mothman? <laughs> okay. It's about to get a sentence you hear every day. Are you sitting on Mothman? Title. <laughs> Title. <laughs> Are you sitting on Mothman? Yes. Okay, so it is most likely that the chest was made around 1830 in Meade County, Kentucky. A man by the name of Jeremiah Graham was super excited about the soon-to-be birth of his first child. As, you know, a lot of parents are. So he began making preparations for his new baby, which included a chest that was to be hand-carved by one of the slaves on his farm, whose name was Remus. Which is Harry Potter. Back to Harry Potter. Everything is back to Harry Potter. Ugh, I don't want to talk about Harry Potter right now. J.K. Rowling ruins everything. Also, we're talking about a slave, so that's also not great. It also ruins everything. So, Remus worked tirelessly day and night to create create the perfect chest for his master and his growing family. When he finished, what stood was a beautiful four-drawer chest with glass handles and intricate carvings along the sides. Like, if you open that link I sent you, the very first picture is what the chest looks like. It's beautiful. Oh, I didn't know that you sent me anything. I, oh, I sent you the website to the, um... Oh, okay. The podcast. But if you open that website, That's there's a picture beautiful. there. It is gorgeous. Like, I need it in my house if it didn't, like, kill a bunch of people. <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> people die. <laughs> Honestly, it's one that literally anyone w- would want in their home. Like... I just, whatever, it's gorgeous. But for some reason, Jeremiah did not see it that way. He disliked the chest so much that he ruthlessly beat Remus. Oh, what the fuck? And Remus unfortunately died from his injuries only a few days later. Ugh. See, this, this is exactly why s- nobody can convince me that George Washington was a good guy, because he also had slaves. And... Uh, mm. Anybody who yeah. owned a slave was not a good person. I need Sorry. to trace my history I, I feel like back. that's not... <laughs> I feel like everybody knows this. I just get mad. This, rightfully so, angered Remus's friends and fellow slaves at the plantation. And they wanted revenge for his senseless murder, obviously. Mm-hmm. Late one night, while their master was sleeping, they snuck into Remus's workshop with a conjure man. He proceeded to open a drawer of the chest and sprinkle dried owl's blood into it while humming and dancing a song of conjure. Mm. This was done to summon an evil power and curse the Graham family for generations to come. For some reason, 
Whether it be the curse or the sudden feeling of remorse, Jeremiah took the chest that he literally killed someone for because he disliked it so much and placed it in his son's nursery. Mm. When his son was born, the clothes, you know, his clothes were, of course, put into the chest next to his bed. And shortly after, the poor baby passed away due to unknown causes. Not wanting such a beautiful chest to go to waste and unused, he re-gifted it to his nephew on his birthday. However, on his 21st birthday, Jeremiah's nephew was stabbed to death by one of his serpents. Holy shit. The chest then came back to Jeremiah's family, and it didn't seem to come after Jeremiah, even though he's the one who committed the horrible crime that caused it. Mm I guess it's he... close proximity? No. No? Basically, the chest is if you put anything belonging to a oh, person in the chest, okay. that person will die or suffer a horrible grievance. Shit, give me that chest right now. Sorry. <laughs> I have some grudges, no. okay? Okay. No. So Jeremiah apparently died peacefully in his sleep at a rather old age. Therefore, he did not suffer much except for the death of his son. Mm. The chest was then inherited by another of his sons named Moses, who had lived his entire life as a bachelor. After this, he's, uh, Moses soon met Amanda, who oh. was three times younger than he was. Oh. Gross. The t- <laughs> The two married, and Amanda, who quickly discovered its background, locked the chest up in the attic in order to avoid the risk of any more death in her new family. Mm. So Amanda's younger sister, Catherine, met and married an Irish man by the name of John Ryan. With nowhere to live and raise a family, Moses and Amanda, who were doing very well on their own, gladly gave the couple a farm of their own to, you know, take care of and try to make a profit and... Mm -hmm. You know, live. Catherine was apparently the supermom of supermoms. While giving birth and raising the children, she also worked on the farm breeding and slaughtering animals for food. To the point where she felt overworked and very tired. And to top it off, her husband did little to help her. He just wanted to sit back and enjoy the fruits of her labor. Hmm. You know. Amanda felt horrible for her little sister, seeing how unhappy she was. She offered to help in any way that she could. However, John, he refused any help. And eventually refused to let Amanda come over to even just visit. Brownies? And milk. Brownies and milk! Oh my god, ask her where she got her pajamas. Target. All right. Thank you! Brownies and milk. Brownies and milk. Gonna go great with my wine. Okay. Feeling obligated to help with her sister's happiness, she faintly recalled the cursed chest of drawers that she had hidden in her attic. (laughs) And was, you know, probably at this point just covered in cobwebs. Mm Mm-hmm. But since nothing had happened to her in her family in the time that they had had it, she just chalked 
it up to be rumors. As you do. As as you do. So she had the chest cleaned up and delivered to her sister with hopes that it would bring some type of happiness to her life. Unfortunately, shortly after the chest arrived, Catherine's husband left her and the children for a new life in New Orleans. Ooh. I feel like I saw that coming. Yeah. At this point, Catherine became bedridden with a broken heart and passed away barely out of her 30s. Dang. Shortly after her death, John was bashed in the head by a steamboat's gang plane and gang and died almost instantly. So, Jesus. karma for how he treated his wife or curse. Ooh. Yeah. With the children being left to fend for themselves, Amanda and Moses had to find living arrangements for them. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they could not care for them all because, you know, kids are super expensive to take care of. Yeah. And they had, like, a lot. <laughs> so... These children were sent to live with other relatives, except for three-year-old Eliza, who did go to live with Moses and Amanda. Apparently, the moment that Eliza ran to Moses with her arms open, he knew that he he, that he needed to raise her. Aww. Which is just super cute. That's so sweet. Eliza turned into a beautiful, intelligent young woman who grew up to be a school teacher. And not even two months after becoming a teacher, she met and married a man named John Gregory, who was a clerk at a shoe store. As a present, Amanda gave the happy couple the dangerous chest of drawers. giving the fucking thing to people. (laughs) Did she just forget that this was the same set of drawers that probably killed the girl's parents? Oh my god. But you know, that's okay, that's okay, because it did not immediately affect Eliza. Eliza grew old, had a few children, even even adopted a young girl named Mabel. When Mabel got married, that chest of drawers was finally used again. Um, Eliza had placed Mabel's wedding dress in one of the drawers, and so shortly after, Mabel's husband suddenly died. Oh, dang. Yeah. After this moment, it's like suddenly the curse was just released full force. Uh, Mabel then placed a piece of her child's clothing in the chest, and shortly after that child died, Liza's daughter-in-law placed her wedding dress in the chest, and shortly after she uh, passed away. Mm -mm. Even Eliza's aunt Sarah hid a birthday present for her son in the drawers for Christmas, but just a few days before Christmas, he fell through a trestle and was killed. Oh, what the fuck? Two more tragedies occurred in the family. Eliza's son-in-law abandoned her daughter, and a child suffered an injury and was unfortunately crippled for the rest of her life. Dang. So, despite all of the family tragedies, Eliza's husband, John, was doing so, so very well. He had become a successful businessman. When he passed away, he owned a farm, a coal yard, a lumber mill, a department store, and in total, five homes. Jeez. But despite all of this, Eliza felt that she had nothing after her husband's death. Oh. And she sadly took her own life in 1914. Oh. 
The chest was then inherited by Virginia Clay Hudson, who was a granddaughter of Eliza's. She had heard all of the rumors surrounding the chest, but just like Amanda once mm -hmm. thought, this, you know, just rumors, nothing. There's no truth to it. But it wasn't until she put her baby daughter's clothes in the chest that she believed the stories might be true. Oh. After the death of her daughter, she then used the chest for her other child, who then contracted infantile paralysis. Whoa! Later on, she placed another daughter's wedding dress in the chest, and unfortunately, her husband's, or her daughter's husband died shortly after this. Man, I would have tested it out on somebody I didn't like, even if I wasn't, like, totally sure. If I was, like, really, really skeptical, I would have been like, who is somebody I hate? Let me steal something, something from them and then put it in this chest, see what happens. You know? Then a family friend came over and placed his hunting clothes in the chest. Oh. The next day, he was shot while out hunting. Her son was even stabbed in the hand after he had placed his clothes in the chest. Dang. So, like, I mean, this is happening this is like to not just Dybbuk family. This is like the Dybbuk box times eight. He... People compare it to it. Having enough with the curse, Virginia contacted a family friend named Sally and asked if she knew how to remove a conjure. And she did. Ooh. First, she apparently need oops, screw too far. First, she apparently needed an owl that was given to them by a friend. Luckily, her son had a stuffed owl in his room that had been given to them by a friend. So, Aww. you know, step one, done. Step two, she needed to have leaves from a willow tree, but the willow tree needed to have been planted by a friend. Mm -hmm. Luckily, Virginia had a friend who had planted a willow tree many, many years ago, and to her luck, that tree was still there. According to Sally, willow means sorrow, so Virginia needed a leaf for every victim of the chest. In total, Virginia picked 16 leaves from the tree. That's so many. So many. The third step was to put the leaves in a pot and boil them from dawn till dusk, adding water and to watch for the curse-breaking owl. When this step was completed, the water was then supposed to be placed in a jug and buried under a flowering tree with the jug's handle facing the east. Hmm. A few days after the ritual was completed, Sally apparently pulled Virginia aside and informed her, if this works, once the flowers have fallen from the tree, one of us will die and the curse will be lifted. Wow. So you ha summer, there has to be a sacrifice. <laughs> oh, pretty much. Dang. That's how magic works, duh. As summer turned to fall, the last flower of the tree fell and poor Sally passed away in September of 1946. Wow. After this, the chest was kept in the Hudson family until 1976, where it was then donated to the Kentucky History Museum in order to ensure that no one else would fall prey to the curse. Smart move. Finally. Once inside the museum, you can see that the second drawer of the chest holds a bag containing the owl feather used in this ritual. Hmm. And a note next to it warning all who open the drawer to never place anything inside of it. And Dang. that is the conjure chest. Wow. Well, I hope everyone really enjoyed my story. I, I know, know I, I did. did. 
I heard that story on Zach Baggins. Baggins? Baggins. Baggins. Bilbo Baggins. Zach Baggins. Now just imagine him as like the grumpiest fucking hobbit. Look, that I have learned that is exactly why I, co- I say Zach Baggins is because I think Bilbo Baggins. Nice. <laughs> when I watched that episode of his Deadly Possessions, I was like, "This is super interesting, and this is super close." Yeah, super I saw it on exciting. there, and I was like, "We haven't done one close to home in a while, so I figured that'd be a good one." Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Myths Misfortune, or you can search for us using the full name Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Please, please, please check out our website, mythsandmisfortunes.com. Our theme music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Adkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. Once again, ooh, spooky. It's October. Please, we implore you, rate, review, subscribe. And... Thanks so much for listening, guys. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that sounded like a ding-dong. Ding-dong. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.